So let me ask you this question. What do you think of when you hear about the power of God? How do you apply that? What do you think that pertains to? Well, well-known um, prosperity teacher Kenneth Copeland, who I believe is a false teacher, recently said that just as God spoke everything into existence, you too have the power to speak things into existence. One best-selling self-help book from 2006 titled The Secret was founded upon the three-step premise of ask, believe, and receive. The Word of Faith movement is filled with false prophets who will promise you wealth and healing if you simply have faith. And often that faith is manifest by how much you give. Motivational preachers like Joel Osteen will likewise tell you that God wants to bless you materially in this world if you would only trust in him. And today, even many of those who are in Pentecostal or charismatic churches will often identify power with the spiritual gifts, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, um, anything that's of a supernatural nature. And even many Christians, even those who truly know Jesus Christ might not identify with any of these movements or teachers, but they will look to the power of God as it relates to their own illnesses or issues at work or issues within the family. And while God's power can certainly be exhibited in our lives and in miraculous ways in some of those ways that I just mentioned, what I really want you to understand is that biblically speaking, the power of God is consistently emphasized in a very different way with very different applications for your life. You see, the true power of God is most clearly directed at our spiritual needs rather than physical needs. It is eternal rather than temporal in its scope and its focus. It is about enabling you to do the will of God rather than giving you carte blanche to do your own will. It is available to you in an ongoing manner throughout your lives rather than an occasional manner where we might look for a one-off miracle. Its effects will ultimately be seen for all eternity and not just for a temporal period of time. And it is vital for you to not only understand the nature of this power, but to understand also why it's important and how it applies to you in your life here and now. As a reminder, we've been looking at this very carefully crafted prayer described by Paul. This is what he prays for with regards to the Ephesian believers. And it can be applied to all of us because this letter is absolutely timeless. This prayer is timeless. It is applicable to every believer in every age, including us here today in Brawley. In fact, we can see that the content of Paul's prayers not only reflect what is true for every believer, but it shows the priority of what Paul believes is most important to us. In his prayer, you will see what is most important to us as believers. And Paul is not speaking from human wisdom, but rather from godly wisdom. We know that this letter of Ephesians is scripture, which means that God, the Holy Spirit, breathed out God's words through the Apostle Paul. So if I were to ask everyone in this room, what is your main priority as a Christian? I suspect that a lot of you would say to glorify God. And that would be a very good answer. But for that to be effective, you need to know what that means specifically in relation to the power of God. That's why this prayer of Paul matters. That's why we've slowed down to understand each of these verses, each of these words, and the theology behind it all. And this morning, we're going to wrap up our study of Paul's prayer with this climactic emphasis upon the power of God that stretches from verses 19 all the way to verse 23. That's actually more than half of his prayer devoted to the power of God, and with good reason, as we'll see. So as you can see in your bulletin, this is part three of Paul's pastoral prayer for you. And my purpose this morning will be to continue to show through Paul's prayer what all Christians ought to pursue in order to walk faithfully with God. And as you can see in your bulletins, there are five timeless pursuits that we find in Paul's letter 
Now, we covered most of the first three points in the first two messages that I gave in this section. This morning, we'll finish it. Now, remember that this chapter began with an extended and marvelous word of praise to God for his blessings of salvation. That began in verse three and went all the way down to verse 14. Amazingly, those 12 verses were all one sentence in the Greek in which Paul lists out the amazing and abundant spiritual blessings given to us in Christ by God the Father. That is followed by this prayer that stretches from verse 15 to verse 23, which is also one sentence in the Greek. And the significance of it being one sentence is that this is all a continuous flow of thought. Everything that you see in this prayer is tightly interconnected. This prayer also follows the praise that Paul lifts up to God for good reason. Because Paul wants you to be able to understand what he understands. He wants you to be able to praise God with the same knowledge by which he praises God. So before we finish Paul's prayer this morning, let's go ahead and summarize what we've learned so far from verses 15 through 18, which we covered in the first two messages. The first timeless pursuit was to remain steadfast in your faith and love. We see that in verses 15 and 16. Where we read, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. We see in those first two verses that Paul gives thanks to God based upon what he has heard about them, that they continue to endure in the faith in the Lord and and their love for all the saints that they're both walking faithfully and that they're continuing to show love for one another. Now that is foundational because if nothing else, you want to continue in the faith and you want to continue in your love for one another within the church, within the body of Christ. But Paul also reveals that he prays for them at the end of verse 16. And the content of that prayer begins in verse 17, leading us to the second timeless pursuit, which is to incline your heart to the illumination of God's word to incline your heart to the illumination of God's word. Starting in verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So in verse 17, Paul is praying to God that that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In the knowledge of him. And this is connected with the enlightenment of the eyes of your heart in verse 18. Now, when we talk about the enlightenment of your heart, we're not talking about your physical heart, obviously. We're talking about spiritual illumination. We're talking about the ability to see and to understand and comprehend and apply God's truths from the scriptures into your life. And clearly, Paul wants you to grow in your knowledge of God. He wants God to grant you that wisdom and revelation through the Holy Spirit to accomplish that purpose. But that leads to Paul's purpose in praying this prayer for you. Why is it that Paul wants God to give you more wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him? Well, he gives us three purposes, and that leads us to the third timeless pursuit, which is to desire the fruit of knowledge from illumination. To desire the fruit of knowledge from illumination. So starting from that second part of verse 18, starting with the words, so that uh, this prayer that God that God gives you spiritual wisdom and revelation is so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now, we saw three things being mentioned there, three purposes. And the first was the hope of his calling. If you remember this, his calling is referring to his calling of you to salvation. The fact that God has chosen you, that he has called you, that that he has he has rescued you from darkness, that that he has worked in your heart for you to confess Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. That that calling is what what Paul gave praise to God for from verses three all the way to 14. It's the calling of salvation to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive salvation. And there is hope tied to that calling. There is a hope not only in the future, because we know that there is a glorious future that awaits us. 
that we know there's a glorious future that surpasses anything that we can experience in this life today. But there is even a hope, even today, as we have ongoing forgiveness of sins. We, we have the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit within us. We have ongoing access to the Word of God. We have ongoing access to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is tremendous hope that is tied to this calling. And Paul wants you to understand that hope. But he also mentions the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that's speaking towards the future glory that we have as saints. It's talking about God's inheritance in the saints. And you are all, if you're in Christ, you are saints. So Paul here is saying that there are riches and, uh, of glory that are inherent in you and the inheritance of God that God will have in you when we are finally in heaven. And this is an amazing promise because it shows us that we matter to God. It shows us that God cares about us. And, and not only does Paul want us to know the hope of God's calling of us, but he wants us to see that God has glorious plans for us into the future. And it actually even starts now in how we live. It starts now in how we witness to people around us. It starts now in showing that there is a difference between us and how the world conducts themselves. And that is where I left off two weeks ago. But that now brings us to the third item that Paul wants us to know. So we officially begin this morning's message by looking at the third purpose behind Paul's desire. That you receive wisdom and revelation from God. This is still part of point three in your outline. And looking again at verse 19. Look at verse 19. What is it that Paul wants you to know? Paul wants you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Again, we see the superlatives that Paul uses here. Ephesians is a letter of superlatives because Paul is continuing to continue to lift up the greatness of God and the greatness of our salvation and the wondrous grace and mercy and love that was poured out in that. And we understand here that the power of God is extraordinary by itself. But Paul refers to the surpassing greatness of his power. Let's break that down for just a moment. The word greatness is often used to describe magnitude. So we think of great as being something that's, that's really large or something really intense. But in this case, it refers to something that exceeds the standard of excellence. It exceeds the standard of excellence. So if we have a certain level of excellence, the power of God surpasses that. It surpasses that standard. So greatness in this verse means that the power of God exceeds the standard of excellence. But then Paul doesn't just say greatness. He says surpassing greatness. Well, to surpass means to go beyond all known measure. So if you had a scale of one to ten, this power of God does more than just exceed excellence. It completely recalibrates your entire scale. Whatever you thought was a ten before. You would be tempted to turn it into a zero when you look at the power of God. The power of God just shatters everything that you know to be true about power in and of itself. So to put this together, surpassing greatness, we see that Paul is once again piling up these superlatives to illustrate this awesome power of God. It is beyond any standard of excellence. It is beyond any known measure. But what's really exciting is the direction of this power. Look again at verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards who? Us who believe. Now that's an awesome reference to power that is directed towards us. But before we can reflect on what that means, let's go ahead and finish out this verse because Paul isn't done talking about power. Look at the rest of verse 19. He says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now, as a translational note, the NASB once again adds additional words in an effort to break this sentence into smaller sentences. But I actually prefer how the ESV and the New King James bridge this together. Rather than create a new sentence, the New King James puts it all together in verse 19 by saying this, What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So we see here that idea is tightly connected. And as a reminder, this entire prayer is just one sentence. However, before you chalk up the wind for the New King James, 
What the NASB does extremely well here is provide us a better translation of God's power at the end of verse 19. Rather than just call it mighty power as the New King James does, the NASB calls it the strength of his might. The strength of his might. So in other words, as when I read this NASB translation, we have the words power in the first half of verse 19. And then we have strength and might at the end of verse 19. All connected together. Why does the NASB provide us three different words? Because the actual Greek provides us with three different words. The actual Greek gives us three synonyms for power. And Paul actually uses all three the different words. And that's why I prefer that the NASB actually use three different words. Now the question is, what's the difference? We have power, we have strength, we have might. What is the difference between the three? Now, there are some nuanced differences between these three words, I'm sure. I mean, we can sit here and talk about what's the difference between strength and might and power, and and we might come up with some differences. However, the point of emphasis here is not the nuanced differences between, between these three words, but rather the clear overlap, the clear synonyms of power. Paul is deliberately stacking his power vocabulary in addition to the term surpassing greatness that we just discussed. And if that weren't enough, there's even one more power word being used. Can you see it? That's the word working. This comes from the Greek word energeia. It's where we get the word energy. Okay, it's where we get the word energy. That word for working comes from the word where we get energy. It's the idea that something is in continual motion or operation. There is power that's involved there in continuing it forward and continuing to operate. So in this verse 19, Paul emphasizes God's power by highlighting its source, its greatness, its raw magnitude, and its continual operation. Have you ever thought of God's power in those terms? Have you ever recognized God's power as being continually available to you and being above any scale of operation, any scale of power, any standard of excellence that you've ever known before? Chances are you've never thought of God's power this way. I had never even thought of God's power this way until studying this verse and breaking it down. But this is exactly why Paul wants you to know God's power. He wants you to know it in this way. Now, let me highlight this emphasis in another way. Look back at verse 18. Remember that Paul wants us to know three things, right? He wants us to, he wants us to have spiritual wisdom and revelation so that we would know three things. And as we reread this, notice how each item is presented with greater emphasis than the last. Pay attention to how Paul, like a concerto, is building up to a crescendo with these three things that he wants every Christian to know. Rereading verse 18, it reads, I pray that your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. That's purpose number one. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That's number two. And then number three, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of the strength of his might? Each term is building upon the last one. Each term is getting longer with more words to describe it. And believe it or not, Paul is still not done describing the power of God. So while he has been building up to this climax of God's power, using all these synonyms, superlatives, and animated expressions, he's going to point out exactly how this power had already been demonstrated from verses 20 to 21. So before we try to better understand this power and how it applies to us as believers, we have to look at how it has been demonstrated. That leads us to the fourth timeless pursuit that every Christian needs to walk faithfully with God. The first was to remain steadfast in your faith and love. The second was to incline your heart to the illumination of God's word. Third was to desire the fruit of knowledge from illumination. And the fourth is to recognize the surpassing power of God working in you. To recognize the surpassing power of God working in you. And starting in verse 20, this power in which he described in verse 19 
is the same power that he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. So we see right at the start of verse 20 that this power described in verse 19 is the same power used in Christ. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He goes on to identify two specific events where this power was most visibly demonstrated. But let's pause for a moment and consider this. If you have read through the Gospels, it goes without saying that the entire ministry of Christ was a continuous demonstration of power, was it not? You read through the life of Jesus Christ. You read what he accomplished and you see power repeated over and over again. He worked out signs and miracles. He cast out demons. He healed people of lifelong handicaps and illnesses. He brought people back from the dead. He taught with amazing authority. He brought forth the glory of God through his face at the transfiguration. He brought down scathing condemnation upon the religious elite. And he brought forth many authoritative prophecies about the future. But as we look again at verse 20, Paul presents to us the high watermark of God's power. The high watermark of God's power with two events, and they're both stated in verse 20. Let's take a look again. Verse 20, again, Paul wants us to know this power, which he brought about in Christ When, number one, he raised him from the dead, and number two, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we see here that God raised Christ from the dead, and God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, of all the events of the life of our Lord, why are these two singled out above all the others? Well, let's consider each. First, we look at the fact that God raised Christ from the dead. Why is that so significant? Well, we know from the fall of mankind that God had cursed mankind, right? I mean, going back to Genesis 3.19, let me just read for you this. Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. This is the condemnation. This is the curse given from God to Adam. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So right from the Garden of Eden, right from the fall of mankind, God cursed mankind with death. We die because we are sinners, because we are cursed. And let me read for you Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12, you don't have to go there, you can just write this down. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The idea here is that we are sinners and as sinners, we face the curse of death. And 1 Corinthians 15 verses 16 through 18, just write that down. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 16 through 18, Paul says this about the resurrection and the importance of being resurrected. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What Paul here is saying is that if Christ was never resurrected, if he was never raised from the dead, then you have no hope. All this that we do in the name of Christianity is pointless. It's absolutely useless. But because he was raised from the dead, we do have hope. Because he was raised from the dead, we know that we too, who are in Christ, will be raised as well once we perish temporally. So our hope is in eternal life. The guarantee of that hope is the fact that our own Lord, though he was made incarnate as a man with the same limitations of mankind— was raised up from the dead by God the Father as a declaration that Christ had successfully reversed the curse. Let me read for you Romans 1.4. Romans 1.4, Paul says this, Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That was a declaration that Jesus was who he said he was and that his promises were true. 
He was the one who was deemed worthy to bear our sins and give us eternal life. His resurrection provided full validation of everything Jesus Christ had promised to those who believe. And remember the promise of John 3.16. Most of you know that from heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not but have eternal life, everlasting life. So Jesus conquered the single greatest enemy of mankind going back to the fall, and that is death. And him being raised proved that those of us who believe will also be raised. We have that as a guarantee. We have that as a promise that after this life, the power of God will get us past our greatest enemy, which is death. And we will be in God. We will be with God in heaven for all eternity. Now, what about the second demonstration of power? Well, it says that God seated Christ at his right hand. Do you know where that comes from? That comes from Psalm 110. And actually, my very first visit to Western Avenue Baptist Church, I preached from Psalm 110. Turn with me to the Old Testament. Keep your place here in Ephesians and turn to Psalm 110. It's really uh, Psalms are at the midpoint of the entire Bible. You go to Psalm 110. This is the most messianic of Psalms. What I mean by that, this is a psalm that prophesies of the future Messiah, and it is viewed as the pinnacle of messianic psalms, of messianic prophecies. Psalm 110, verse 1. And by the way, this psalm is quoted more than any of the other psalms in the Bible. There are 150 psalms. None of them are quoted more than Psalm 110. And no verse is quoted more than Psalm 110, verse 1. Take a look at Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, you'll notice a few things here. First, we have two lords presented in different ways. The first Lord, if you look at your Bible, is probably printed in all uppercase letters. Is it not? You see Lord printed in all uppercase letters. That refers to Yahweh. That is the name of the God of Israel. The second Lord, you'll notice, is in mixed case letters. That's a more general title of authority. It can refer to God. It can refer to man. But the one who's writing this is David. You see that even before verse 1, that this is a psalm of David. David is the one writing this psalm. And he knows that he is writing about a future son of his who will reign forever. How does he know that? He knows that from 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he received the Davidic covenant. He received a guarantee from God that one of his sons would reign forever. So he's writing this psalm knowing that it is a messianic psalm about his son. But that brings up the question, if he is writing about his son, why does he refer to him as my Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. Why? Ultimately, because that son of David more significantly would be the son of God. That's why Jesus would point to this psalm and challenge the Pharisees, asking whose son is he? But we can observe two things about what's being said from God the Father to God the Son. First, right here in Psalm 110, verse 1, God the Father wants the Son to sit at his right hand. And second, he wants him to remain seated until when? Look at verse 1. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Both truths are important in the passage we're looking at in Ephesians. What's the significance first of Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God? Well, to be seated at the right hand of a person is often a position of honor, right? I mean, it's like being a VIP guest. You know, you, you go and the host has you sitting right at his right hand. That means you're a, you're a special guest of his. You have special honor. But to be seated at the right hand of the king is to share in the power and authority of that king. In other words, Jesus Christ, from the time that he ascended up into heaven, he has been reigning over the heavens and the earth ever since that ascension. He even announced that authority to his disciples prior to the Great Commission. 
You all know the Great Commission, but what did Jesus say just before the Great Commission? He said this in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. And then he goes to give the Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations. Now turn back to Ephesians 1, to our passage this morning. Turn back to Ephesians 1 and look again at the end of verse 20 into verse 21. Ephesians 20 at the very end says that that he, God, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then verse 21, look at this description in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. What is that? Well, that describes the absolute nature of Jesus Christ's reign in heaven. Now, these four terms, the rule, the authority, the power, and the dominion, they're all generic terms for authority figures. But when used together, this clearly refers to all authorities, both in the earth and in the heavens. More specifically, when Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament, like it is here, these figures refer contextually to the enemies of Christ. So all rule, authority, power, and dominion is referring to the enemies of Christ. And as read previously, Psalm 110 verse 1 told us that Christ will be at the right hand of God until when? Until all of his enemies were made a footstool for his feet. And when talking about spiritual authorities who are enemies of Christ, clearly we're talking about Satan and the legion of fallen angels, otherwise known as demons. In fact, just a few verses after this in chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, we see Satan described in verse 2 as the prince of the power of the air. And while Satan has his legion of demons... Paul even refers to false apostles as Satan's servants. That's in 2 Corinthians 11.15. 2 Corinthians 11.15. And even all of us, prior to salvation, when you look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, we are known as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. You see that in verses 2 and 3. We are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. And this underlines a strong theme of spiritual warfare that runs throughout Ephesians that culminates in a call for us to put on the armor of God in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. In fact, look at chapter 6 right now, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And we're going to see similar references that we just saw in chapter 1. Ephesians 6, 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But we have another reference after these four, after the power and authority and rulers and whatnot. We have another reference being added at the end of verse 21. Christ is not only far above all rule, authority, power and dominion. But what else? Look again at verse 21, Ephesians 1:21. Christ has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, it is very possible that Paul mentions every name that is named in light of the culture that was at Ephesus. You see, in Ephesus, much like the Greco-Roman world, they were highly polytheistic. They dabbled in all kinds of occult practices that we might consider witchcraft or sorcery today. It was generally understood that evil spirits were abundant. They were numerous and they were everywhere. And there was often a fear in such polytheistic backgrounds of unknown gods. Pagan worshipers wanted to be sure that they were appeasing all known gods and even all unknown gods. You saw that really in Athens, in Acts 17, when Paul approaches the philosophers in Athens. They had a statue that said what? 
to, to the unknown God. It's because they wanted to appease even the gods that they did not know. Now, of course, we know that there is only one true God. And when people worship false gods, they're actually worshiping demons. They're worshiping demons. And Paul's statement here is that Christ is above every name that is named. And this serves as a point of emphasis that the reign of Christ is above all, even even the unknown spirits that they didn't know about, even the spirits who were still not named, even all the demons that they did not see, even to the quote-unquote unknown God. Christ reigns above all. And of course, we find similar language from Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. In fact, you can turn there right now. It's one book to the right of Ephesians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11 reads this. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So going back to Ephesians 1, we see that in every possible way, Paul is exalting the reign of Christ to include everyone. Everyone in the spirit, in the physical realm, everyone in the spiritual realm, everyone, both seen and unseen, everyone, both known and unknown, everyone in every age is beneath the reign of Christ. Beloved, there is nothing hypothetical about the power granted to Christ sitting at God's right hand. That power is of the absolute highest order. And what is Paul's point here? That this power is at work to those of us who believe. That's the amazing part. This power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand and gave him authority over everything that exists in the heavens and the earth is available to us who believe. But what does that mean for us? Before I answer that, let's hit that fifth point and we'll circle back to what this means for us Today, with Christ ruling over all from heaven, this highlights a fifth pursuit that every one of us needs to walk faithfully with God. And that is to exalt Christ as head of the church. Exalt Christ as head of the church. Look at verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we see at the start of verse 22 that one of the results of the power in raising Christ and seating him at the right hand of God is subjection, subjection or submission. And when it says all things, we understand that everyone is subject to Christ. We saw that with the quote that I just read from Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And we also have this from Psalm 8, verse 6. Psalm 8, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Psalm 8, verse 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Thus, not only all people, but all creation as well are subject to the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. But while we as Christians submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord... I don't believe this verse here in Ephesians is meant to include believers as being under his feet, as we'll see in a moment. I believe Psalm 10 is more explicit. And let me just read for you once again. Psalm 10, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Because as we look again at Ephesians 1, verse 22, we see this. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And what else? He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what we see here is that Christ, who is the head of all things, was given to who? Given to the church. He was given to the church. And look at verse 23. The church is what? 
The church is his what? Body. It's his body. Now, this is amazing because once again, we see that some we see some of this mystical union that we have with Christ as the church. We see that union referenced over and over again. Whenever you read reminders such as phrases that you're in Christ or that you're with Christ. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter two, verses five and six. We'll study this soon, but we'll take a quick look at this. Ephesians chapter two, verses five through six. We see the same idea here. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is all describing our union with Christ and the fact that we are made alive together with Christ. We are raised up with Christ and we are seated in the heavens with Christ. But going back again to Ephesians 1.22, we see a different relationship that Christ has with us compared to his enemies. You see, his enemies are placed in subjection under his feet. Jesus Christ is their sovereign ruler and judge. But for us as the church, he is our head and we are his body. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. While we submit ourselves to Christ... We also are protected by Christ. We will not face judgment. We know we have eternity with him in heaven. But this is not only a future reality. It is a current reality. You see, we exist today as the body of Christ, doing his will according to his power. And in fact, look again at verse 23, the very end of verse 23. If we read this all, we, we see that the church is his body. And we see that the church is described as the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is to say that the fullness of Christ is manifest in the world today through the church. Christ is made manifest through the church. In fact, you may remember Jesus Christ telling the disciples in the book of John that you're going to do greater works than I am going to do. How was that? Because he would actually make disciples of all the nations through his disciples. And you remember John the Baptist, when John the Baptist said, I come baptizing with water, but one comes after me who baptizes with what? The Spirit. You know, that didn't happen during Jesus' earthly ministry. That happened after he ascended on the day of Pentecost through his disciples. The work of Christ continues today. Jesus Christ is made manifest through the church. And just as Jesus Christ is getting, was persecuted in the past, we get persecuted today for believing what Jesus tells us to believe, which is the truth. He tells us that if he was persecuted, recognize that the slave is no greater than the master, and we too will be persecuted. And that last phrase in verse 23, who fills all in all, could refer to one of two things at least. It could refer to Jesus Christ and his sustaining power over all the universe. We know that Jesus sustains all things. You see that in John 1. You see that in Colossians 1 and even Hebrews chapter 1. We saw in verse 22 that Christ is indeed head over all things. However, verse 23, the focus is upon the church. So in that context, when Paul says who fills all in all, I believe this is talking about the church. In other words, Christ fills all of the church in all of the ways needed for us to do his will. He fills all in all in context with the church. Now, that's how we have God's power made available to us in Christ. And again, I believe this reality ties back how Christ supplies for the church as its head and how we function as the body of Christ. Now, this is deep, so let me just pause for a moment. Let's, let's think about this for just a moment. If you think about your own body, if you think about how your body operates, your body is not able to act independently of your head, right? You can work out as much as you can. You can eat healthy. You can do all kinds of things to take care of your body. But no matter what condition your body is in, every action you need your body to perform starts with the head. The head has to send signals to your body parts. What's my point? Well, we together as the body of Christ, we operate according to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
As a body, we operate at the direction of Christ as our head. That's why the the motto for this church is now growing together in Christ. Because this idea is that we're growing together as a body in Christ, according to Christ. He is our leader. Not me, though I'm your pastor. Not the deacons, though they help with the oversight of all of you who consist of the church. The head of the church is Christ. It is our Lord. And the fact that Christ has been elevated beyond all authorities, both physical and spiritual, both seen and unseen, should be a source of great comfort to you and to me. Because we're not connected to the world. The world is going to be judged. We're not connected to Satan. Satan's head will be crushed. We're not operating with the legion of God's enemies. They will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. We are connected to Christ, who is the supreme ruler over all the heavens and the earth, and there's not a single thing that anyone can do to change that reality. And this is yet another reminder to us that the ultimate victory over our ultimate enemy has already been won. Now, for us today, it may be difficult to understand this, because we live in a world, like I said, where we see the persecution around us. We see people who continue to battle against the truth of God. We see that in our school systems. We see that in politics. We see that in all the different kinds of special interest groups that exist throughout this nation and around the world. We see that in the decaying nature of our own bodies. Our outer shell continues to grow weaker and weaker, does it not? We know that we are decaying in many ways. There are many challenges in this world. But you see, Jesus Christ, he came the first time to do what? To save. He came the first time to bring salvation. And right now, he's sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over all the heavens and the earth until a future time, which refers to his second coming. And when he comes the second time, he is going to come to bring ultimate victory. He is going to come to bring judgment. He is going to come to bring war to those who are his enemies. But until then, between his first coming and his second coming, he is patiently providing an opportunity for people to repent. And that is why we are here. Because no matter what struggles you go through, no matter how much you're aching, No matter what trials you have at work or what challenges you have within your family, no matter how difficult your circumstances are, you can rest in this fact that one, Jesus Christ is up in heaven, ruling over all the heavens and the earth. And two, that in that we have a guarantee that we will be up there with him in a future time. And there is nothing that people can do to us to take away that joy and hope in the future. Absolutely nothing. And the testimony that you give to the world, the testimony that people see in you that despite your difficulties, despite what you're going through, when they look at you and they can see the hope that you have in Christ, when they can see that you are still obeying God even when it hurts, when they see that you are willing to share the gospel when you are the one that may be in need of physical ministry, when they see that your hope cannot be broken in Christ, they recognize that there is something different about us compared to the rest of the world, and that difference is Christ. And that is how Christ is made manifest to us. You want the power of God in you? It's not about miracles, though God can do them. It's not about giving you wealth and prosperity in this world. It's about a spiritual war that is going on. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when I did the statement of faith on Satan, Satan's job, Satan's modus operandi is to discredit God. It's to discredit God and bring accusations against those who are elect, those who are saved. And in this world, what we do is we glorify God by resisting the temptations that are brought to us by the forces of darkness. That we can say, no matter what you do to me, no matter how you try to tempt me, no matter how you challenge me, no matter how you attack me, I stand firm on the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the power of God for you to do the will of God, no matter what circumstances are all around us. And that is a marvelous Blessing That is even more miraculous than someone just speaking in tongues or speaking out prophecy. 
That is to say that even for the world, when they look at the decaying nature of this world, when they see the loss of hope in this world, they see in you an undying hope that can never be taken away. That is the power of God towards us. So if you want to know how to apply these things in your life, start by just examining your life. In what ways are you failing to live up to what Christ expects of you? In what ways are you not walking with Christ as you should? There may be certain sins that are just dragging you down. You may be disconnecting yourself from the church and not fellowshipping with the rest of the body. There may be numerous ways that, that, that you're feeling your spiritual walk is getting lethargic. Well, beloved, I submit to you that the power of God is not only available to you, but it is constantly available. It is working. It is the power of God according to the strength of his might that is available to you each and every day to be able to stand firm, to be able to endure, to be able to give glory to God no matter how hard your circumstances are. And this is the wonderful thing about this entire prayer of Paul. Because from the beginning, going all the way back to verse 15, he is showing us what he desires for us as believers. You want to know how you can grow? Start by looking, reviewing, once again, just this entire chapter 1 of Ephesians. Remind yourself of the blessings of salvation that we saw from verses 3 to 14. And then look at this prayer and look at how Paul wants you to grow. You can't go wrong by following what Paul prays for. Make, Paul prayer, make, make Paul's prayer your prayer with regards to your own spiritual walk. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me urge you right now that you stand in judgment before God. You stand in judgment before a holy God who expects nothing less than perfection. All of us are sinners. All of us are worthy of the wrath of God. All of us deserved death for all eternity. That's why Jesus Christ had to come. Because while no man is perfect, while no man has ever lived a perfect life, our Lord Jesus Christ did. He made himself incarnate into a man in order to live the perfect life, in order to fulfill the law that we could never fulfill, in order to bear his life on the cross as a substitute for us to pay for our sins. But what is required of you today is to repent. Repent means you turn away from your sin, that you make a decision right now that you will, you will no longer commit the sins that you have been committing as an unbeliever and that you will turn to Christ and you will confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It is that simple. It's just like the testimony we heard from Clark in his baptism. And it is a supernatural work that God can do in your heart if you repent and believe. For the rest of us, I pray that you would continue to meditate upon the power of God. You would look at your lives and the ways in which maybe you're grumbling, you're falling short, whatever it may be, and appeal to God to help fill you with that power to be able to do his will and to be able to endure whatever this world has for you. Let us pray.